This story occurred on May 21st, 1924 in Chicago, Illinois. A 13-year-old boy is kidnapped. When found out, his story gripped the nation. His father was a wealthy businessman, and he had no one he could trust, and even fewer people he could turn to. One, two, three, and... Hello everyone, and welcome to Forgotten True Crime, the podcast where we investigate true crime cases forgotten through time. We examine each crime independently of other people's opinions. We search out prime sources through police records, witness statements, news reports, and much, much more. Please subscribe to the podcast so when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. You can also check out our webpage at truecrime.blog. There we post each story and some of the reports we've gathered for each case. We have a Facebook page and a YouTube page as well. You can find us under Forgotten True Crime. These stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. On May 21st, 1924, Robert Franks and his friends are just now getting out of school. Now, these boys had made some plans. They were going to go to a local baseball field and they were going to play a game. Robert, who knew the game well, he decided he was going to be the umpire for this game. This particular game ran a little long, so before the game was over, Robert decided it would be best for him to get home. He said bye to his friends, and then he went on his way. Now, we kind of know the route that Robert took because he was actually seen walking home by Mr. Walter Wilson. He was a school teacher at the school that Robert went to, and he was kind of Robert's mentor in a way. At home, Robert fails to actually show up. As the evening goes on, Miss Franks, Robert's mother, gets more and more worried about her son. Robert's father, Mr. Jacob Franks, calms her down and he reminds her that, you know, Robert's a young boy, he's got lots of friends, and he's probably on his way home. It wasn't unheard of for Robert to be late to get home. This was something that they were dealing with and that they had dealt with in the past. Miss Franks wasn't out of line with being concerned. Her husband, Jacob, was a wealthy, wealthy man. In Chicago, he was a pawnbroker who then became a real estate titan. And Miss Franks, whose full name is Flora Franks, had every right to worry because her family would be a target for anyone who wanted to make money off of them. As the night wore on, Mr. Franks became more and more worried for his son. He contacted his friend, Mr. Samuel Edelson, and they decided to get together and drive up to the school to see if Robert had been locked in or was ill. They didn't know where else to really go. When they arrived at the school, they checked all the doors and the windows, and they couldn't see anyone locked in or left behind. Now, they did not have any keys or any access to the school, but when they were checking the windows, they did find one that was unlocked. 
So they went into the school through that open window and they checked every single room just to make sure that Robert was not in the school anywhere. Meanwhile, Miss Franks was at home. She was waiting to see if Robert would return or perhaps get them a phone call or something. It wasn't too long after Jacob and Mr. Edelson went to the school that the phone started ringing. And immediately, Miss Franks rushed to the telephone. She believed that this was going to be her son calling her to tell her what was happening. But when she answered, she was given the shock of a lifetime. A man Miss Franks did not know started talking right away. This is Mr. Johnson, the voice on the other end said. Of course, you know by this time that your boy has been kidnapped. We have him and you need not worry. He is safe. But don't try to trace this call or find me. We must have money. We will let you know tomorrow what we want. We are kidnappers and we mean business. If you refuse us what we want or try to report us to the police, we will kill the boy. Then, after a pause, before Miss Franks, terror-stricken, could make any reply, the man said, goodbye, and abruptly hung up the receiver. After this phone call, Miss Franks fainted. When her husband returned home, he found her on the floor, completely passed out. Mr. Franks rushed to his wife. He feared that she had fallen ill. When she came to, she explained the horrible situation of what was going on. Acting quickly, Samuel Edelson actually came up with a really good idea at this point. They called the phone company and they decided they were going to put a trace on every single phone call that came to their household. At this time, operators had to connect incoming calls directly. They actually spoke to each person and who they wanted to connect to. This made it pretty easy to make a trace in this manner. But they were unlucky in their attempt. The kidnappers did not call back this night. Now, Mr. Edelson was just as worried as the Franks. He was an intelligent man, and he was actually very well connected. He knew the chief of detectives, Mr. Michael Hughes and Lieutenant William Shoemaker. He convinced the Franks that they needed to go to the detective bureau. Now, again, Miss Franks would stay behind, and Mr. Franks would go in with Mr. Edelson. However, when they arrived at the detective bureau, they were met by acting Lieutenant Robert Wellington. It was later at night, and the detectives that Mr. Edelson knew were not on duty. Knowing the seriousness of what was going on, Mr. Franks decided he was going to carefully confide with the acting lieutenant. They were very careful not to divulge too much information to the lieutenant because they didn't know him. And they feared that if he acted too severely, it would result in the death of their son. They kind of spoke in what-if terms, so not really making a statement that this did happen, but what if my son was kidnapped? What should I do? What if the kidnappers contacted me and demanded a ransom? What should I do? 
it was through these means that they conveyed the seriousness of what was going on to the lieutenant. By the end of it, they had all decided that waiting until the next day would be best to see what the kidnappers wanted. Lieutenant Robert Wellington reassured them that he would only tell the chief of detectives, Michael Hughes, what was happening. Interestingly enough, Lieutenant Robert Wellington kept his word on this, and he didn't even make a report on the case. He waited until he was able to speak to his trusted captain that next morning. If he were to have written a report, it would have become public knowledge, and that might put the boy's life in danger. That next morning, it was May 22, 1924, Jacob Franks received a special delivery letter. It was the ransom. The demands they had been waiting for. It read, As you no doubt know by this time, your son has been kidnapped. Allow us to reassure you that he is at present well and safe. You need fear no physical harm for him, provided you live up carefully to the following instructions and such others as you will receive by future communications. Should you, however, disobey any of our instructions, even slightly, his death will be the penalty. 1. For obvious reasons, make absolutely no attempt to communicate with either the police authorities or any private agency. Should you already have communicated with the police, allow them to continue their investigation, but do not mention this letter. 2. Secure before noon today $10,000. This money must be composed of old bills of the following denominations. $2,000 in $20 bills. $8,000 in $50 bills. The money must be old. Any attempt to include new or marked bills will render the entire venture futile. 3. Have the money with you prepared as directed above and remain at home after 1 o'clock p.m. See that the telephone is not in use. 4. You will receive future communication instructing you as to your future course. Signed, George Johnson. Now, by this time, Jacob Franks had already made up his mind. He was going to pay the ransom no matter what. He just wanted his son back. And it sounded like it was a very real possibility if he just cooperated with the demands of the kidnappers, he would get his son back by the end of the day. Meanwhile, that same morning, Tony Manicki was walking to work. He walked along the railroad tracks every morning. He worked at the American Maze Product Company that was right next to Wolf Lake nearby Chicago. As he walked, he noticed something strange in an overflow culvert nearby. It looked to be someone's feet sticking out. Feeling uneasy about the whole situation, Tony looked around and noticed some railway workers going down the tracks in a handcar. 
Tony waved them down and pointed out what he saw. The men all walked over to the culvert, and what they found was the body of a young boy. Worried that he might still be alive, they removed him from the culvert, but it was just too late. He was already dead. They immediately phoned the police to report what they had found. When the detectives arrived, they interviewed Tony and the other railway workers. They got their stories down. They also had officers search the area. This was a swampy part of the lake and was not visited very much. So anything found in this area would be considered a clue until they just ruled it out. The first thing that they found was actually floating in the water. It was about 100 feet away from the body. It was a sock. It actually matched the one that was on the boy's foot. His other foot was missing a sock. The other thing they found was some horned rim glasses. They were around the same size as the boy's face, and they believed that they belonged to the boy, so they put them on his face. Officers began to comb the area for any witnesses. At this time, there were several homes that had a nice view of this stretch of railway. So officers went door to door to see if anyone had witnessed anything odd in the last day. There was only one man who had seen anything. He told the officers that that previous night, he overheard two or three men talking out on the tracks. Their voices just kind of wafted through his open window while he was trying to sleep. Now, although he could not make out what they were saying, he could hear them out there trying to talk in hushed voices. He had gone to the window to see what was going on. It was odd that anyone would be down there at this time of night. But he couldn't see anyone. It was just too dark. At the same time all of this is going on, Mr. Franks is preparing to go to the bank to get the ransom money. Flora Franks was distraught and just so worried it just made her sick. Mr. Franks phoned a doctor to visit the house and attend to his wife while he was dealing with these other issues. Around the same time, Mr. Franks received a phone call from a family friend. The friend tells Mr. Franks, that when he called, he actually overheard the operator gossiping about tracing calls that were being made to the Frank residence. Mr. Franks swore his friend to secrecy and then called the operator. If his friend could find out about the trace in such a way, then the kidnappers would be able to find out as well. Mr. Franks thanked the operator for their hard work and told them to stop tracing all calls. Mr. Franks then went down to the bank. By this time, he had been up for over 24 hours straight. He was disheveled, tired, and just honestly broken. When he arrived at the bank, he told the teller that he intended to withdraw $10,000. When the teller reached for the till... He pulled out clean, crisp bills. Mr. Franks stopped the teller at once and told him he just wanted old, worn-out bills. The teller found this odd but complied with the request. He went into the back of the bank and 
shortly thereafter returned with $10,000 in old bills. When he arrived home, Mr. Franks waited for further instructions. According to Mr. Edelson's account of the time frame, Mr. Franks was very anxious and scared for his son. He called and confided in his brother and told him what was going on. When he got off the phone, it was only to clear the line because he just did not want to miss any incoming phone calls. But he had to wait quite a while for any calls to come. No phone calls came in until right around 3.15 in the afternoon. It, again, was the voice of Mr. Johnson. I'm sending a yellow cab for you, the voice said. The man repeated his message, and then he told Mr. Franks to have the money with him, to get into the cab and go to a drugstore on 63rd Street. He gave another street the intersection at which he said that the drugstore stood, but Mr. Franks, when the cab arrived, had already forgotten this information. The cab came in from a substation of the cab company on 47th Street on Cottage Grove Avenue. It had been ordered by phone as though it were ordered from the Franks' home. Mr. Franks began to panic at this point because he was very, very worried that he was going to get something wrong here. He forgot the cross street, and he feared that if he made any wrong moves, this could mean the death of his son. They told the cab to wait while they worked a few things out. The cab driver was actually Mr. Charles Robinson. And according to his story, he was told to wait. He waited. And then eventually, somebody came out and paid him and said, you're free to go. The reason they had the cab leave was because Mr. Franks received a phone call that changed everything. You see, since that morning when Mr. Franks had spoke to his brother and confided with him what was going on, his brother feared the worst. So he was keeping tabs on what was going on around Chicago. It wasn't long until the news broke about the young boy found in the culvert, fearing that it might be his nephew. He drove down to the police station and informed the police that he might be able to identify the body of the young boy that was found earlier that day. When he was given permission to view the body, he positively identified it as his nephew, Robert Franks. It was then he had to make the very, very painful phone call to his brother and inform him that his son was dead. Now that authorities knew the identity of the murder teen was Robert Franks, they were now able to better focus their efforts on the case. They questioned anyone and everyone that was around Robert's life. The first person that came to mind, not really as a killer, but as someone who might know who were around Robert, was Mr. Walter Wilson. He actually came and visited with the family after they had called him about the death of their son. When he visited with them, they asked if he had any guesses to what might have happened. And he simply put it that it must have been kidnappers after some quick cash. 
This is when he told them that he had seen Robert walking home after he had left the baseball game. They were both walking in the same general direction. Walter said that he became distracted by some flowers that were in a field, and he actually bent over to look at them. When he looked back up, Robert was no longer in front of him. He didn't know where he had went and didn't think anything of it at the time. Now that the detectives had the ransom letter, they noted that it was written by someone with a strong command of the English language. It was flawless in many ways. Detectives believe that it would have been easy for a school teacher to have written the letter, but much harder for would-be thieves. So detectives wanted to interview Walter Wilson for themselves. If this story was true and Mr. Wilson saw the victim after the baseball game, then so far he was the last person to see Robert alive. Detectives interviewed Mr. Wilson for hours. He gave the same statements that he gave the Franks. He had nothing to do with it all. But one thing that caused detectives to suspect the teacher was that there was a time in the past when Mr. Wilson took the Franks two boys to a park that was out of town. It took longer than expected to get home and Mr. Wilson dropped the boys off at home at around 1 a.m. Mr. Wilson was scolded by the Franks but was forgiven because the boys were in good spirits and seemed to benefit from the trip. But detectives began wondering if there was something more behind this whole trip. They also questioned Mr. Wilson's love life. Detectives asked Mr. Wilson if he was seeing anyone or if he was romantically linked to any ladies in town. He had told the detectives that he was not, but this wasn't really by choice, more because he said... He just didn't know anyone in Chicago. As evening turned to night, a new clue came to light. The well-written ransom letter was found to be taken almost word for word in the May 3rd, 1924 issue of Detective Story magazine. The article written for the magazine was called The Kidnapping Syndicate and was written by Christopher Booth. This killed the theory that only a well-educated person could have written the letter. The comparison of the two letters will be posted to be seen on my website over at truecrime.blog. I will say they are almost identical letters. It just looks like the kidnappers tailored it for this situation. It was after this came to light that they let Mr. Wilson go. They then started bringing in other teachers and school members for questioning. The captain started developing a theory that there was a chance that this might have all started out as a fight between students. If you remember, Robert was the umpire for a baseball game that was after school, and that was one of the last places he was seen alive. The captain began to wonder if the losing team perhaps jumped Robert after the game in order to get some kind of revenge for them losing. If something happened and it all got out of hand, they might have killed Robert on accident. And the whole kidnapping part was just to push blame elsewhere. Although, it was admitted that this seemed unlikely. There were several pieces of evidence that the detectives were working on at this time. You see, 
One was the eyeglasses that were found and placed on Robert's face. These glasses were found to not belong to Robert. So detectives wondered if they were in fact the killer's glasses. Perhaps when they were disposing of the body, they fell out of his pocket. Eyeglasses experts from all over the state were called in to examine the glasses. These glasses didn't have any markings on them. They were horned rim glasses, and really there was no way to trace them to an individual. But detectives were hoping they would at least give a clue to who they may be looking for. Maybe someone's age or gender or something along those lines. When the experts were able to look at the glasses, they came to the conclusion that they were women's glasses. This actually puzzled the chief even more. You see, there was no indication up until this point that any woman may be involved in this case. So the chief refused to believe what the experts were telling him at this point. However, he did tell his detectives if they were to find any kind of female link, it might change his mind on this evidence. The other piece of evidence that they had was the ransom letter itself. Now, they no longer looked to the words that were typed on the letter as the real clue because they were copied word for word out of a magazine. But they actually looked at the ink and the font that was used in the letter in order to see what brand of typewriter might have been used to actually write this letter. You see, not every typewriter is the same. Some use different fonts, spacing, different placement for keys. But in this instance, the typewriter expert believed that the typewriter used was a Underwood Portable. They also believed that the person who used the machine did not use it very often. Like a handwriting expert would, a typewriter expert can tell how hard someone hits each key. And in this instance, it seemed that the person who wrote the letter pressed each key at varying degrees of pressure, showing that they did not hold their hands properly on the keyboard and were not really confident in using the machine. But officers are really focused in on the glasses, and they hope that once they found who made them, they would have records they could go through in order to find out who they might belong to. They would look at the measurements of the glasses and the strength of the lenses as a way of making that identification. But all of this would be prolonged processing for the detectives. In the meantime, they sent officers out each day with different orders. They were to question anyone who might be driving a vehicle that was similar to the one spotted in the area where the victim disappeared. They were also on the lookout for all known perverts. These were sex offenders who were on the streets. As each day went by, it seemed more and more unlikely that they would find any real clues to who might have committed this murder. But on May 30th, 1924, there was a possible break in the case they finally found someone that might be the owner of the eyeglasses that were found near the body. Quickly, detectives tracked down a young man named Nathan Leopold. 
Nathan was a student at the University of Chicago and went through primary school at the same school that Robert attended. Nathan's father was a box manufacturer and his father, like Robert's, was a millionaire. When questioned about the glasses, Leopold first said that they might be his, but later, after search of his home revealed the empty case into which they fitted, he then admitted that they were his own. He said he probably dropped them in a visit that was right around May 17th or May 18th to the swamp ground where the body was found. Nathan told detectives that he had been there about 50 times. He explained that it was one of his favorite places to study birds, a subject in which he was fascinated. In 1920, Nathan graduated from the same school that Robert was attending, and from all accounts, they didn't really know each other. Since then, Nathan attended law school at the University of Chicago. In addition, he took other special courses in sociology and doing research works in sex psychology. When questioned where he was on the day of the kidnapping, Nathan maintained that he was at Lincoln Park, which was on the other side of the city. He was studying bird habitats that day. He did tell the police that he did not go home after that point. He was actually accompanied by a friend, and they went to a party and picked up two girls. He took them for a ride in his automobile. Now, he declined to divulge the name of his friend until he had consulted his attorney, but he did not know the names of the girls, except they were called Helen and Edna. He told the police he didn't drive them home, so he really didn't know where they lived. And so the chief of police appealed to the girls to visit his office to tell them what they may know of Leopold and promise them immunity from publicity. Still finding this all suspicious, detectives started questioning Nathan's friends. One such friend was named Richard Loeb. Now, Richard was the son of Albert Loeb, who was also a millionaire and the vice president of Sears, Rosebook, and Company. So when they went to question Richard, they actually found a typewriter of the same type that they believe was used to type the ransom letter. Now, just owning a typewriter wasn't enough evidence to charge someone with murder, but things started adding up just a little bit. So detectives started taking the gloves off, and they started confronting these boys with what they knew. The police were relentless and questioned these boys for over 36 hours. Eventually, they started getting confessions. As in most cases, when one person starts confessing, the other starts to as well. This case was no different. Both confessions are almost nearly identical. Once again, you can go to my website, truecrime.blog, and you can see the original documents for yourself. Apparently, they had been planning this murder for months. According to them, it really didn't come down to money. They, it's not something that they needed. Their parents were wealthy millionaires. But these boys had become bored with life. And they wanted to do something so taboo like committing the perfect murder. A murder 
with someone that they had no ties to. Because of this, they believed it to be the perfect crime. Now, if this is something that seems kind of familiar to you, there have been several movies and books that have been written just on this crime alone. They've just changed names and dates and kind of modernized it, but this is actually the source material for all of that. The major difference between the two confessions was who actually killed the boy. Both of these young men were law students and they knew that whoever committed that killing blow would more than likely be put to death. So they were going to avoid that at all costs. They told the detectives that they identified Robert Franks as their target because of their family's wealth. They went and searched for Robert and when they found him walking down the street... They pulled up beside him and asked him if he wanted a ride. They convinced him to get in the vehicle, and that's when one of the two men attacked him. They struck Robert over the head with a ice pick. They were attempting to knock him out. But Robert fought back, so they struck him again. And then they took his sock off and they stuffed it in his mouth. It was this sock that strangled the young boy. Now, despite not knowing who really committed the murder, both of these boys were going to be tried for it. On June 6, 1924, the grand jury of Cook County indicted the two boys on charges of murder and kidnapping for ransom. Both offenses were punishable by death in Illinois. Then on June 11th, They appeared before Judge J.R. Calvary, pleaded not guilty, and they were held without bail for trial that was to begin on August 4th. But before that trial could actually take place, on July 21st, their pleas were changed to guilty, and the court then consented to hear the evidence as to the nature of the crime from the state and testimony mitigation and punishment offered by the defense. Now, even though this murder could be punishable by death, it was argued that these two young men were actually just too young to actually be given the death penalty. It was argued in front of the court, and the court actually accepted that. And so the judge was kind of put between a rock and a hard place when trying to decide into how he was going to sentence these boys. So because the judge could not actually sentence them to death, he decided he was going to do the next best thing. He sentenced them both to life in prison for the murder, and then they both received 99 years for the kidnapping. He also stated on the record that he believed that these two should never be paroled. On January 28, 1936, Richard Loeb was attacked by another inmate and was murdered in prison. The inmate that murdered him stated that he was trying to fight off Richard's sexual advances and he had no other choice. Nathan seemed to have a little bit easier of a time in prison. Although the judge warned that he never be paroled, he finally made it out of prison in 1958. He spent 34 years in prison. While in prison, he wrote a book called Life Plus 99 Years. It was published in 1958, and it was part of his campaign to achieve his parole. 
In the book, he explicitly said that he was not going to recount his childhood or describe in any details the murder. It was more about his life post the murder. Nathan died on August 29th, 1971 at the age of 66 due to a heart attack. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you subscribe. That way, when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. I'll see you all next time when we find another case of forgotten true crime. See ya.